We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 tonight. And what I love about this chapter is the transformation. We have someone that is in a lame condition, literally a lame person, and they're transformed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And see, we may look at that and say, well, I've never physically maybe been lame where my legs did not function the way they were supposed to. I didn't have some kind of congenial disease or anything. But here's the reality. We all have a spiritual disease that is called sin nature. And because of sin, death has entered the world. And both physically, as we die, and we all know that death is not right. We do not like death. We don't like going to funerals. We shouldn't. That's kind of weird if you like that, by the way. But if you go to a, a, a funeral, you go, man, this just isn't right. And that's because it was never meant to be this way. What was meant to be was restoration, reconciliation, being restored back to that relationship at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve with God, right? In the garden, that perfect, beautiful fellowship, but then sin entered. And now all of us are in a lame condition and we need the healing of the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so for those of us that have experienced the healing of Jesus Christ in our lives, spiritually, hopefully, maybe even physically, mentally, emotionally, but spiritually, we've committed our lives to Jesus Christ. We now know what it is to be born again. And we look at this section and say, okay, maybe I don't relate as much to the, the beggar anymore. I, I, I once did. Now it's like, well, let's look at Peter. Let's look at John. Let's look at the examples of the guys that are, that are in this section that represent the church. So either way, there's lots of things for us to connect to and relate to in this section. So it's a real blessed section. Fun side note, this is actually the chapter that I taught the day that I was ordained as a pastor, as assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel, Pomona Valley. So this is a section that's kind of dear to my heart. But again, we're just working through chapter by chapter. So we're at Acts chapter three tonight. Let's jump right into it. We're going to see the extraordinary. We're going to see an explanation and we're going to see an exhortation. Those are the things we're seeing tonight. Let's look at verses one through 10. Uh, the extraordinary beginning with verses one through three. It says, now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. So right away, we're getting the setting of what's happening here. Remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised, hey, the, the, the promise of the Father is coming. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when you do, you will receive power to be witnesses to me. You will go out and you will, you will go out to fulfill that great commission to Jerusalem first, and then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 brethren that were the church. And then they, it said in, in, in Acts 2, it said that there were great signs and wonders. I believe it was in chapter 2, verse 43, that the apostles were doing. And man, everyone could tell there's great things happening. So you keep that in mind. We come to this chapter and it says Peter and John, two of the apostles, two of Jesus' original disciples, right? And apostles. They went up together to the temple for the hour of prayer. And so you might look at this and say, well, that's kind of weird, right? Because these guys are Christians. They're not, they're, not, they're not practicing Judaism anymore, right? Well, here's the deal. They're going for the hour of prayer. It says it's the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. The standard times of prayer for the Jewish uh, people at the temple were 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And normally there would be an hour of sacrifice that followed those prayers, those times of prayer. So 
they would go being Jewish men. They were Jewish Christians. So they still practice culturally Jewish things. They said, we can go to temple. We can pray to our God. We can represent Jesus Christ at the temple, but we're not going to stay for the hour of sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice, our perfect sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, according to John 1 129. And then in Hebrews 10, 10, we're told, right? That Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. It says, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Paul wrote that in Hebrews or the author of Hebrews wrote that. We don't know if it's Paul. I think it might be. But whoever wrote Hebrews through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, look at Jesus is the final uh, sacrifice for sins. There's no other sacrifice. But so they would go there and I believe they would go and proselytize all of their fellow brethren there. They would point to the Old Testament scriptures as we saw Peter do last week, as we're going to see Peter do this week, as was the trend. You take the Old Testament scriptures to the Jews, you'd show them that Jesus is the Messiah. He has resurrected and he has power to save from sins. So they're going to the temple, they're going to pray, they're going to witness to those there. But we're told in verse two that there was a man that was laid out at the, at the gate called Beautiful. And it's not just that it's a beautiful gate, it was actually called the Beautiful Gate. Um, it was 75 feet tall, 60 uh, feet wide, and it was pure brass and covered in uh, gold and silver. They said it was like absolutely beautiful and magnificent. That's in Jose uh, Josephus's um, writings that this is what it looked like. This is it was just like something that you would look at and go, man, that's lovely, right? That's beautiful. And yet laying next to it was a man who was shackled in torment in the sense that he had a physical condition. We're told actually in, in the next in Acts chapter 422 uh, that he actually had this since birth. He's been he and, and that he's 40 years old, we're told in that section. So for all of his life, for 40 years, he has been suffering from this congenial disease that he had, and it's made him lame. His legs don't work. That's what we know from this. His ankles uh, didn't work. We're gonna find out later. It had to do with his feet and ankles. Um, so I shouldn't say legs, feet, ankles. Um, he's laying by the gate though, and he's he's begging, and he's begging, asking for for alms. And see, he laid at the gate because when you had a condition like this one, where you were born with a a a blemish, we'll say, like a serious condition, in Jewish mindset, that meant, well, hey, your parents must have sinned, or you yourself have some kind of terrible sin and curse upon you. Therefore, he couldn't enter the temple. He could only go as far as that beautiful gate. And that beautiful gate led visitors from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the Jewish women. So he basically was seen, even though, you know, I'm believing he's a Jew here, um, he couldn't go in. He was basically treated like an outsider, like a Gentile in the eyes of the temple. That's as far as he could go in. And so here he was feeling absolutely cursed, probably cursed by God, he feels like definitely despised and rejected by men. And he's laying here thinking, man, this is just a terrible life, right? And we're told here that he asked for alms. That's a weird word, right? We don't really use the word alms in, in 2021 in America, right? But basically what alms are, they're a charitable donation of mercy or pity. So it's the idea of this man's out there begging. He says, hey, can I have alms? Can I have, can I have coin? Can I have money? And see, begging seemed to be the only way that this man could live given his condition. See, it wasn't like he could he could just go get a job, right? I mean, the, the, in that culture, which was like an agricultural culture, um, he, he wouldn't be able to work. He wouldn't be able to do. So he figured, man, I'm just going to sit by the gate and I'm going to beg. And it would be easy at the temple to some extent because we know 
that the Jewish culture, they became very ritualistic in their giving. It was a very, it became a vain, self-righteous uh, obligation. Like religious men, they would flex, so to speak. They would, they would try to measure or proclaim their own righteousness by going in and they gave without care consideration for those in need. They just gave so that they would look really important. And it became so perverted in the way they would do it that Jesus spoke about it, right? In Matthew 6, 2 through 3, Jesus said, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And so Jesus said, hey, don't just go around giving out like alms for the sake of looking holy and pious, okay? See, we're going to find out here that the, the disciples, the apostles, they listened to Jesus on these things. It was easy probably just to give this guy some money. But instead, what we're going to see is they're not interested in just these mere outward displays of being pious and holy. They, they're, they're about something bigger than that. And it's because they have the spirit of Jesus Christ in them. And I love it because in verses 4 through 6, Peter engages the lame man and he gives him more than he could ever have expected. Check it out here. It says, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So <laughs> here's Peter, and he tells this guy, Peter and John, they fix their eyes on this, on this beggar laying by the gate. And they say, hey, look, look at us. Okay, this is, this is funny because I feel like this is the opposite of what many people will do, and myself included many times in the past. Um, if I'm driving, I... I I guess I should say more when I was in California. Sorry, if that's a political thing, it's just a reality. I don't run into a lot of people begging in Texas, but in California, there would be people on the side of a freeway off ramp and they would be begging for money. The first thing you usually do is you, you like roll your windows up and you lock your doors and you try to look away. Maybe is that terrible to say as a pastor? I'm saying sometimes, not all the time, but often you're like, man, don't make eye contact. Cause if I make eye contact, what that's going to do is it's going to create an expectation. I'm looking at you and you think I'm going to give you something, right? And you're going to come over to my car and you're going to come talk to me. And that's weird if I don't have something to give you. But I love this. Peter says, hey, look at me. I want your attention. And we're told in verse five that he gave it to him with expectation, right? He actually looked at him and, and was thinking, okay, like you must have something for me. This is going to be great. You can imagine the beggar rubbing his hands together saying, man, I can't wait to see what you're going to give me. You, most people don't even look at me. <laughs> You're telling me to focus on you. And so he probably anticipated a really good donation, right? And so he was probably thinking, this would be great. I'll get a sizable money gift from this guy, monetary gift from this guy, from Peter and John. And I'll be able to live in my current condition for however long these guys want to bust me, two days, three days. This will be great. They're going to give me something good. But I love this because it's by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, this man will receive something so much greater than earthly riches. How often we think we know the solution to our problems. How often we think we know what would fix our condition. God has something so much greater in store for us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so look at this section. Peter says in verse six, right? Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. And man, honestly, right away, that guy begging was probably like, wait a minute, silver or gold you don't have. Man, beat it. Hit the bricks, man. I don't I, like you don't have any money for me. 
Why are we engaging? I was expecting you to do something when you told me to look at you. He's probably disheartened by this, right? But again, God knows what this man needs. And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, see, he says, look, at, I, don't, I don't have money. <laughs> money, and, and let's be clear, Peter's probably thinking money's not going to solve your issues. But what I do have is the Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, to loosen those shackles of suffering, those infirmities, and give you new life. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And I just love this because remember Peter witnessed Jesus perform a similar miracle to this. Back in John 5, 8, he told a lame man, right? Rise up and take up your, your bed and walk. And so here's Peter following Jesus' example, using Jesus' spirit <laughs> in Jesus' name. That's what we should be doing as the church, amen? If I'm not doing the things according to Jesus' example and by the spirit of the Lord, by the Holy Spirit that's commonly called, called the spirit of Christ, in his name and his authority, man, we're in trouble. We're working in the flesh if we're away from those things, right? But the Greek word that Peter used to tell this lame man to rise up is a gyro. And it means to arouse from, from the sleep of death, to recall the dead to life. So he's telling him, hey, get up out of death and walk into life. That's a, such a cool phrase, right? Like, get up here. But here's the big deal. I think this is awesome. The lame man's faith to believe Peter. Like, all right, like I'll try standing up. That's faith right there. This man has been a, a, a crippled man since he was born, and he's 40 years old. He's never stood up. He's never walked. He had to be carried daily, it said. And Peter says, hey, stand up. Rise up. And here's this man. He goes, I'm believing what you're saying, not just for the physical hearing or healing, but also for the spiritual healing, right? The reality is, he says, man, I've heard about the name of Jesus. Everyone in Jerusalem had heard about Jesus. Peter, by this point, was probably getting a reputation, right? We're going to find out later. Peter's walking around. His shadow is, is supposedly healing people. That's how, that's how like, his name gets out, right? So here's Peter, and he tells this guy, get up. And he goes, man, in faith, I'm going to stand up. And see, by putting his faith in the name of Jesus, we're going to see in a moment, that he's completely healed. And in this, it's a picture of the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. They rejected Jesus as Messiah, and they were left in a lame condition spiritually. But see, belief in his name would bring restoration to the kingdom, to their, to their land, to them as a nation, to them as individuals. But we know, and we'll see in this section, Peter will remind them, they rejected Jesus. And in 70 AD, man, Rome came through and just killed people, destroyed everything, knocked the temple down, burned it, right? Melted the gold that was on the roof, all that, because they rejected Jesus. But the good news is, Jesus is willing to say, all right, you rejected me, now come to me, return to me. And see, this lame man is a perfect example. He was in a very lame condition. All he had to do was believe in the name of Jesus Christ and step out in that faith. And so look at what happens in verse 7 through 10. We see the lame man is going to be healed and he worships the Lord. It says, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder 
and amazement at what had happened to him. So this is incredible right here. Here is this man who has been laying by the gate and he's clearly been, 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 par- I don't know. I don't know if the right word's paralyzed. His, his, his feet don't work. Okay. I think we've established that by now. Sorry if this is repetitive in that sense, but we have to understand this. He's never, ever walked. And in verse seven, Peter pulls this man up by his right hand. <laughs> That's crazy. I don't know if you've ever been in a spot where the Lord calls you to do something that would seem absolutely crazy if it was a part of the Lord. I've been in those situations, maybe honestly, like these kinds of things, not, not, not full healings, but I've been in this kind of situation, similar to this two or three times in my, in my, in my whole walk with the Lord. That's in 13 years, three times. But when you're in these situations, man, it takes more than what you have. It takes more than your own like gusto (laughs) to, to step out into these things. It's terrifying to some extent. But what we see here is we see the spiritual gifts of faith, which is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, knowledge and wisdom, 1 Corinthians 12, 8, and healing, 1 Corinthians 12, 9. All those are gifts that operate in the spirit to glorify God for the common good of the believer, right, and of of the kingdom. And so all those things are on display in action. And this man who's never walked before, here's Peter filled with that dunamis power, right? That explosive, fiery power of the Holy Spirit. And he was equipped to perform this miracle by God's leading to be a witness of Jesus to all those who were present at the temple in Jerusalem. He's being a witness that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is alive and moving. And this is continued fulfillment of Acts 1.8, right? The theme verse of this book, that, that, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And see, this is just one example of the mighty works that the apostles performed listed in Acts 2.43. And so, verse 7, Luke, very practically, I love it because he's a doctor. When he writes out like the, the, the technical terms for ankle bones and for feet, he uses medical terminology. So, very practical. He's like, his feet and ankle bones were strengthened. But then he just says, it happened immediately. I love that there's this, there's this spiritual, uh, extraordinary event happening, but very practical. The doctor says, yeah, his feet strengthened. They got straight. They were just made right. <laughs> so I love that because sometimes we think that there's some like magic, weird thing that has to happen. The doctor just says, no, man, just like immediately. It just happened. In the name of Jesus, his feet were just made, strengthened and made straight. And so... I love it because, again, this proves that the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus is active and real and true and apparent. And it was clear that even though he had been crucified, here he is. He's still moving. This speaks of the resurrection that the apostles testified of, that the disciples proclaimed. And see, Jesus is the Messiah fulfilled Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, both in his earthly ministry And now, even in this case, because that section says of the Messiah that he will make lame men leap like deer. (laughs) This is Jesus performing. He's still proving that he is the active Messiah. And see, in verse 8, the man's appropriate response, he worships the Lord. He's jumping up and down. He's leaping. He's just walking and praising God. And see, the transformation this man experienced was manifested for everyone to see. He stood up no longer burdened by that seeming curse that was upon his life that had previously held him down. And see, with the help of Jesus' disciples 
and his now fellow believers in the Lord, right? They're all believers now. They're all fellow brethren in Christ. He walks into the temple, a new man. I love that because I believe all of us, when we have encountered that healing power of Jesus Christ to heal us of our sins, then we're, we're supported by the brethren that are the church. One of the biggest things for me when I came to the Lord at the end of 2008 was going to the men's study at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, hanging out with these guys that I grew up around and, and, and was familiar with, some guys I wasn't familiar with, but all these guys that I was hanging out with, they really loved the Lord. And even when they had bad days, they would just tell you, man, but the Lord's doing this and the Lord's good. And we'd all strengthen and encourage each other and we'd go back and forth. And it was such a blessing. It just, here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm freed from my sin. I'm walking in the Lord. I'm supported by my brethren. And man, my life was marked with joy at that point. Not always happiness, but joy. This underlying joy that, man, I have been blessed by the Lord and given new life and restoration. And now I should be walking around praising God. Everyone should know that, man, I've been delivered from torment, that life of suffering, and I have new life in Jesus' name. And see, I hope that this could be said for all of us that are in the church, that people look at us and go, man, there's something different about that person. They've been transformed. They used to be in lame condition. Now they're transformed by the name of Jesus, and they're experiencing that joyous freedom of salvation. And see, 1 Peter 2.9 exhorts the believer to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Everyone should know. Side note, everyone may not know my political stances. Everyone may not know my mandate stances, vaccination stances, all these, my, my favorite baseball teams. Maybe they know that. They know I'm a Dodger fan, still a Dodger fan in Texas. But there's so many things that people could know about me. But I'll tell you, the one thing I want people to know about me more than anything, the most important thing is that, man, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. My Instagram feed, I'm all about putting out there, man, my life is because of the Lord Jesus. He is my source. He is my focus. And that doesn't mean like I'm perfect by any means, far from it. But it should be clear that, man, I'm walking around rejoicing that the Lord is good. Amen. It used to be one way. Now I'm changed and it's changed. It's new. It's not just like I got some help and I'm a little bit better. <laughs> A new creation. It says in, in second, second Corinthians 5, 19, I believe, um, that basically if you, it says this, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so I think it's 1 Corinthians 5, 21, actually. Uh, but the reality is everyone should know that we're a new creation in Christ. And so in verses 9 through 10, we see how powerful a testimony is of a changed believer in Jesus. This transformed person, everyone that was around there, they saw this formerly lame man walking and rejoicing, and they took note. They're like, man, what is happening, right? So they, they're in verse 9, right? It says that they, that they went, were with, filled with wonder and amazement. I wanted to get the exact words. I don't want to put words in there that aren't there. They're just like, this is incredible. But also, like, how is this even happening? They're confused, but they're, they're stoked about it, but they're also like weirded out probably, and they, they can't process it. There's a lot of things that are happening there. And see, seeing someone walking with that kind of joy and restoration and transformation, people are just ripe for explanation. They say, tell me about this. It's like someone that goes on a really good diet and starts losing all kinds of weight or exercise program, get all yoked out. People are like, man, I want what you have, right? People are looking at this and they're like, this is crazy. I want to know more about this. They knew that this was the man that sat begging at the temple. Everyone knew this guy. 
Can I tell you something interesting about this before we move on to the next section? This man, it says he was 40 years old, it tells us in Acts chapter 4. Jesus on earth for 33 years, for three and a half years did ministry and went to the temple routinely. Jesus walked right past this guy who daily begged at the temple. And sometimes we say, Jesus, don't you see the problems out here? Why don't you heal this man? Jesus, you have the power. Just look upon him and heal him. Can, can I just tell you? In this section, I, see, I, I think we see the Lord's sovereign, perfect timing to work in his, in his ways. See, Jesus, yes, Jesus could have healed this man at some point during his three and a half year ministry. But can we be honest? Look at the end of the book of John. It says that Jesus did so many great things that if, if they're all written down in, the book, in books, the whole world couldn't hold all the books. <laughs> it's a lot of books. See, this man would have been just another number, probably an unwritten person in, in, the, in the annals of scripture. We wouldn't even know who this person was or how this happened or how it worked. But now, see, this is huge because Jesus has been killed. He's been crucified. And though the apostles say he's resurrected, people don't really believe that for the most part. See, this is huge because Jesus is not physically there, but clearly through his name, he's still active and moving. And the Lord had a purpose for that man's suffering. And it was all for this moment to be healed by the name of Jesus. So I don't know what thing you're suffering in or what's, what thing is holding you down and just feels like a curse upon you. Can I tell you, if, if you've laid it before the Lord and he hasn't moved and Jesus hasn't answered these things for you, I'm not promising physical healing. I'm not promising anything outside of spiritual healing. But when you trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be healed. You'll be transformed spiritually. But then all the other things that we lay before his feet, he's good. And in his timing, he will make all things work together for good for those who love him. Acts 8, 28. That may not even be in this lifetime. You may suffer. This is a sad message. Sorry, this is not prosperity gospel. At the end of your life, you might go, man, I never, I was, I was suffering this thing and it never got healed on earth. In eternity, it will come together to work for good. But then sometimes people get healed, man. The Lord moves and uses it for his glory to prove that he's still active and moving. I hope that all makes sense. And so here are all these people and they're over here and they're like, man, this is crazy. What is happening here? Th their attention is locked in on this man who's a testimony of God's healing. And so Peter says, man, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to preach to these people. And so we had the extraordinary. Now we're gonna have the explanation, verses 11 through 16. Let's read it. It says, now as the lame man who is healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Of y'all. Did you like that? Peter's a Texan for sure. He said y'all right there. Okay. So in verses, uh, verse 11 here, we see, again, Peter is going to, to 
take this opportunity to preach to everyone. And what we're told is that this crowd gathered at Solomon's porch. That was an area in the temple. It ran along the east side of the outer court, right? And so everyone's coming together. This is a crowded area where many people could pass through. It wasn't a select area. Like you could come through here. And so all of these people, uh, likely Jewish people, right? They're at the temple um, coming over and they, they're, they're like, man, what is this? This, this? this man's been healed. And see, we're told that the man held on to Peter and John. Now, I don't know if that's because he's never walked before. Like, I imagine this is the first time he's ever standing on his feet. Maybe he just needs to be supported. Or maybe it's out of great appreciation. He's probably just clinging to him. I remember when, when, when uh, was it Mary clinging to Jesus? And he was like, hey, don't cling to me, right? <laughs> There's this appreciation, this desire to hold on to that person that's just so greatly blessed you. Um, again, it's not Peter that did the miracle. It's Jesus Christ did the miracle. But you could understand if the man's like, man, I just want to be with these guys. <laughs> it might be a combination of all of that. We're not told exactly, but here's the reality. He's hanging on Peter and John and everyone's running over to inspect this man who's been healed. And so in that moment, Peter says, man, I'm not going to let them make their own conclusions of what occurred or try to figure out in their own minds what the healing means, you know, and credit to the wrong, the wrong thing, you know, credit to, to, to the temple or to, to the, the, the afternoon sacrifice or something. He says, no, I'm not going to have that. This is an opportunity to preach about resurrected Jesus. And so I love it because, again, we talked about this last week. Miracles alone, they do, that doesn't generate faith. But you see, it's interesting how those kinds of things will, will get people's attention. And then once it's there, we can rely, just like Peter does, on the word of God to preach a gospel message of salvation. See, when we take the word out of it, who knows what people chalk things up to. But when you bring it all back to the word, to the truth, that's when faith comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's a uh, mutual working of the spirit of God and the word of God to bring faith according to Romans 10, 17. And so in verses 12 and 13, we see Peter immediately decline any credit or glory. And I love that. I don't know about you guys, but I can struggle with this just as a, as a human being. <laughs> I think there's something easy to say like, like, oh man, yeah. Did you see what the Lord did to me? Did you see what he did through me and what he's doing in my life? And we, you know, we might do it in a humble brag way. We don't mean to sometimes. Maybe we're oblivious sometimes. But here's Peter. He's very conscious of like, man, I don't want to take any of the glory. I don't want any of the power for this. And the first thing he says is like, why do you guys marvel? Like, you think we did this through our own goodness? You think we did this uh, because, because of who we are? And see, sometimes we get messed up. We do something big for the Lord. We could teach the perfect sermon. We can lead the perfect worship. We can be used to, to pray over someone and they're healed of something or pray over someone and the demons cast out of them. And we start to think, man, it's because I'm so good. I've been a good boy lately. That's why the Lord is doing it. That's wrong. There's been other times where, where those kind of things happen. It's like, oh, it's because I'm so dynamic. It's because I'm so magnetic and I'm so important. Whatever. <laughs> Remember, I think it's Numbers 22, 28. Balaam's donkey was used by the Lord, right? Used by the Lord to speak. <laughs> And just as a vessel, I think you and I qualify. Sorry about that. I know I qualify. I can be a donkey quite often. But we are simply vessels of God who he graciously chooses to use for his glory. And see, he, cho he chooses the weak things of this world, the foolish things of this world, according to 1 Corinthians 1.27, that he may get the glory. But we are so blessed to be involved in the process. We're just vessels, right? Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, speaking of the gospel and the power of Christ, that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. People looked at this lame man and said, there's something crazy happening here. 
hopefully people look at our lives and say, there's a transformation. There is, there is restoration. There is joy. There is praising there. I want to know more about it. And see, in verse 13, the first thing Peter does is he connects with his mostly Jewish audience. And he says, hey, listen, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He says, this is the God I'm talking about. So in other words, he says, our God, we're brothers in, in faith, he tells the audience. And so you could probably see some heads nod like, okay, like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's our God, okay. He's saying, look, at, we have the common God and I'm still serving him. I believe in the God of Israel and I'm, I belong to him. So everyone's on the same page, right? But then Peter explains, it's the God of Israel, the God of those forefathers who was glorifying Jesus through this miracle. Think about that. The one that they, they crucified, the one that the apostles are saying has resurrected. He says, this is all because God of Israel wants to glorify Jesus Christ. And again, it's further evidence that Jesus is the servant uh, of God as presented in the Old Testament scripture. See that title, servant, in, in verse uh, 13, right? When it says he glorified his servant. In Old Testament scripture, when it says my servant with a capital M or his servant with a capital H or the servant, right? It's referring to the Messiah. It happens in Isaiah 42, 1, Isaiah 49, 6 through 7. We see it in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And it proclaimed that the Messiah was going to come and rule and reign with greatness, right? Over all the Gentile nations of the world to bring justice, right? Isaiah 52, 13 says, behold, my servant, messianic title, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And see, we know that Jesus came first, though, to fulfill the suffering Messiah prophecies like Isaiah 53, 11, right? So Isaiah 53, 5, that he would be uh, bruised and wounded for our transgressions and iniquities, right? That like, like a, a sheep led to slaughter, he would go silently, right? All these things that we see there, the people wanted the servant of God to show up and be the one from Isaiah 52, 13 that was going to just be highly exalted and rule and reign. But when Jesus came and, and came as that suffering lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, the people didn't know what to do with it. And see, they, were, they rejected Jesus and he was crucified. And what Peter is saying here and conveying is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, God's servant, his servant, the servant of the Lord, <laughs> capital S, right? He is the one despite his death upon the cross. See, those things had to be fulfilled. And see, Peter's going to go on here and explain to them in verse 14 through 15. It's funny because he connects with them and says, hey, we have the same God, right? He makes a bridge, so to speak. Now he's going to burn that bridge down. <laughs> because in verse 14 through 15, that boldness of Peter in the spirit, he then tells all the audience and says, hey, you guys killed Jesus. <laughs> Like, imagine thousands of people stand there. This could turn into a mob mentality and stoning and all kinds of things. The people did not like Jesus, clearly. <laughs> they rejected him. They did not like the apostles and the disciples for supposedly fighting against uh, Judaism and everything. Many of the, the, the rulers and leaders, which we'll see in the next chapter, uh, next week, in two weeks. Um, basically, the idea was the religious leaders hated the disciples because they stood against the system because they were Jesus' disciples who also stood against the system of Judaism. He called the, uh, a den of thieves the temple, right? And they had turned it into such a place. It was supposed to be a place of prayer. And so here's Peter, and he says, hey, I just want to remind you guys, I'm telling you that Jesus is the servant, the servant that is the Messiah in Old Testament scripture, and you guys killed him. 
And he says, and how did you kill him? You, re- you turn him over to Rome and you insisted when Pilate wanted to give him back to you and release him, you asked for Barabbas. You asked for, for a guy that was a murderer and you instead, you denied and delivered the Holy One to be killed. And see, Peter's using more Old Testament names and verbiage when he says the Holy One. I think about Psalm 16.10, it says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That was David prophesying that God would not allow the Messiah to stay dead, to stay um, uh, corrupted in Hades, right? The idea was, man, the Messiah, the, the, the Holy One, He's going to resurrect. David prophesied it. That's what Acts 2.27 was about. Peter taught the, the people there that David wrote about the Messiah and his resurrection. And see, though the people blatantly, they, they rejected Jesus, God still exalted Jesus. By the way of resurrection, he proved that Jesus' holy, righteous, just life was undeserving of the wages of sin, which is death. And see, Peter says, hey, the prince of life, you killed the prince of life. It's wild because the prince of life can be translated as the author of life. That means that Jesus himself is the very source of life. And he's, he's God the Son. He is God. He's not God the Father. He's not God the Spirit. But he's God the Son. He's a member of the, of, of, of the Trinity. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? He says, you can't kill the, the, the prince of life. You think you killed him, and technically you did. You crucified him, but it's impossible that he would stay dead. God raised him, and the apostles were witnesses of his resurrection. Amen? Remember, Jesus said, I believe it was John 10, 18, I want to say. He says, um, I have power to take my life, or to lay down my life. I have power to take it up again. You can't kill the prince of life, the author of life. And see what Peter does in verse 16. He proclaims that it's that Jesus, the name of that resurrected Jesus, that is doing this miraculous work that they're, they're, that's happening in the people's midst, the healing of this blind man. I'm sorry, lame man, not blind, lame man. And see, Peter says first that this transformative healing, it came by the name of Jesus. And when we say the name of Jesus, it's not just like what at the end of our prayer, you know, I'll, I'll sit down with my In-N-Out burger and we'll pray for our food and I'll say, in Jesus' name, amen. I just say it out of repetition and, and, and whatever, right? Ritual. Here is the reality. When he says in Jesus' name, he means the authority, the power, the, uh, the ability that is Jesus working in his will and in his might. Peter's just a vessel. And he says, look, it's through that Jesus that this has been done. It proves that he is alive, that he is still working, just as I've testified, Peter would say. And secondly, he says, in that name, it came by faith in that name. I love it. Peter distances himself even further from the miracle. He says, it's Jesus who did it, and it's the faith of this lame man (laughs) that made this all happen. I'm just here, man. I'm just in the right place at the right time, filled with the Spirit, ready to serve the Lord like a vessel. (laughs) What did I do? I showed up and the Lord worked through me. Praise the Lord for that. And through that, this man now knew perfect soundness. I love that. Because of his faith in Jesus. And it's just so cool to see this. Remember, Jesus promised in John 14, 12, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. 
and greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. What Jesus was saying is, guys, I'm going to send you the helper. And when I leave, the Holy Spirit will allow you to do greater things. I believe that's greater in not greater than G- what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus walked on water. Jesus, uh, you know, did, did things that, that he, he resurrected, right? Um, but greater in the sense of, of a greater breath. There's going to be more things done. Powerful things, but more things done through all the different uh, disciples and apostles and all of the church through the history of time, through the power of Jesus, greater works have been done. More amount of works have been done to glorify Jesus since he went away than was done in his three and a half years on earth. That's crazy to think about, right? And so Peter says, this is what's happening. We're just believing in the name of Jesus through the power of his spirit. He's working and moving. And so that's the explanation. Then there's the exhortation, verses 17 through 26. Let's look at 17 through 21. It says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. And so, after explaining what's happened, Peter says, now I'm going to exhort you that you might be forgiven of your iniquities by repentance, by believing Jesus for who he is. And see, verse 17, Peter acknowledges that, hey, you denied Jesus, but you did it in ignorance. Look, in, in, in the Greek, the, the whole idea is like it was connected with spiritual or moral blindness. That's the ignorance. It's not that they were oblivious, they were crucifying someone. It's that they were blinded to who that someone was. They didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah, and due to their spiritual blindness and hardness of heart, they rejected him. They opposed him. Paul wrote of the mind and heart of the lost men, right? Of mankind in their lost darkness. In Ephesians 4.18, he said, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Men are wicked and evil because they're blind to who Jesus is. But when those blinders are removed, we are given new life. And we now, once we were blind, now we see, amen? And see, he says, look at you guys are blind when you did this, spiritually. But Peter says in verse 18 that although you did this in ignorance, you did it in blindness, Jesus' suffering fulfilled what God foretold through all the prophetic scriptures. Look at this didn't surprise God that this happened. But it did not release them from their guilt. It didn't have to go this way, but it did go this way. And the reality is it gave them this opportunity now. Hey, are you going to acknowledge your sin? You did it in blindness, but now are you going to say, yes, we did. We accept that. We believe that Jesus is now the Messiah. We've seen him working. We we hear of these great things that he's doing post-crucifixion and, and post-resurrection, right? Well, see, continuing to reject Jesus as Messiah after giving such clear scriptural evidence and miraculous, uh, you know, tangible proof in their midst, that's that would be a problem. See, so many people go, well, look at, you know, I, I, I didn't know about Jesus when I sinned. So that it's, it's okay. It's a get out of jail free card or something, you know? And it's like, well, okay, but now you know who Jesus is. 
You can't continue going on in sin once you've heard the gospel. If you do, you will be held responsible. There's judgment. There's condemnation that's coming to that. And see, Peter desired that his Jewish brethren be saved from such condemnation. That Look, at you, you rejected, you denied Jesus. But here's the deal. You guys need to repent of this. And see, in verse 19, he gives him that exhortation. He says, repent and be converted. And see, the whole idea, this meant to sim- not to be just simply remorseful or sorry about something, but to change your mind and go the other way. They needed to change their mind who Jesus is and return to God. See, converted in the Greek, it's, it's epistephro, and it means to return. Be converted, return to God, be made right with God by repenting from what you've done. Turn away from those things. Stop rejecting Jesus. Stop denying Jesus. And it's so interesting, right? Because Jesus used this same word, the word that we have here, converted, right? Epistrepho, uh, no, uh, which means return or converted. He used that word in Luke twenty-two thirty-two when he predicted Peter's denial of him, saying, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned or been converted to me, Strengthen your brethren. See, the reason I bring that up is because Peter is telling these guys two times in this section, you denied Jesus. You denied Jesus, right? Who else denied Jesus? More than two times. Peter denied Jesus three times. And he says, I'm fit to give you this exhortation because I know the sin that you're walking in. I've been there. And I'll tell you what happens. If you repent and return to Jesus... (laughs) Just as Jesus prophesied of, of, and predicted of Peter in, in Luke twenty two thirty two, 32, he says, I'll use you to strengthen your brethren. Peter says, here I am, a man that denied Jesus three times. He's so good and merciful and long-suffering that he gave me opportunity to come back to him that I would be forgiven and my sins and iniquities would be blotted out. And see, 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. But see, that only comes if we come and return to Jesus after we've sinned and we, re- and we repent by confessing our sin, acknowledging that we're guilty. And the, the, the byproduct of that, of, of confessing, the result is forgiveness, restoration, and peace with God. And Peter knew all of those because he was reconciled on the beach and now he's being used by God and it's proven evident that he belongs to God by this working of the spirit in his life. He's strengthening his brethren. And see Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And see the phrase, times of refreshing may, may come from the presence of the Lord, that phrase right there. It's a promise connected to Jesus' eventual reign on earth. See, the Lord is going to come. He is going to be present. And someday he will be on this earth. We want to be able to look forward to Jesus' return. We do not want to be looking at Jesus' return as a terrifying thing. If we are, and that's something that we're worried about, the reality is, is that we will begin to, to, to fear God in the wrong way. We're fearful because we're in sin. We need to be have reverent fear towards the Lord by saying, man, I'm going to repent and I'm excited for when he returns so that I can rule and reign with him as 1 Corinthians 6.2 talks about that the church will judge the world. 
Uh, Revelation talks about Jesus coming back with all of the saints and establishing the kingdom. And the reality is, man, we should be prepared for that by repenting and trusting in Jesus. But the nation of Israel as a whole, to the most part, they rejected Jesus. And what Peter was saying is, man, you are not going to experience times of refreshing when you are standing before the Lord, whether it's on this earth or before at the, at the, at the white throne judgment, when you're standing before Jesus, man, you're going to be in trouble. He says, you need to repent and be converted. He says, you repent now, you will be refreshed later. That's always how the kingdom works. The things we do now affect eternity, right? It's not, we don't, we don't get to do whatever we want now. It's like what you do now, you're going you're gonna to receive that later. Have we trusted in Jesus? Have we repented and put our faith in him? And that's what Peter is exhorting them to do. And here's the last section. This is where we finish tonight. We're just going to get in uh, chapter three tonight. It starts at uh, the second half of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. Let's read from there. It says, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And see, what's happening here is Peter is identifying Jesus as the prophet that's greater than Moses to convince them to hear the testimony of the apostles that Jesus is indeed Lord and Messiah and that they would accept that. So he goes to scripture again, right? He says, hey guys, God's prophets spoke of the coming Messiah and he is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it by dying for sins and now he's resurrected. He says he's also that prophet that Moses spoke up and, and prophesied of in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. He said, there's one coming that's going to be like me, Moses said. And he's going to be God's messenger. He'll, he'll give the word to the people. And if they obey it, they'll be blessed. And if they reject it, they will be cursed. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 28, 9 and Deuteronomy 28, 15. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, you'll be blessed. But if you reject them, curses will come upon you. That's the reality. God honors his word above his name. He can't allow you to be perfectly blessed as you walk opposed to his ways. Now you might say, well, James, I don't believe in Jesus and I'm pretty blessed. That's the mercy and grace of God. That's just his goodness. <laughs> this is as good as it gets for those that don't believe in Jesus Christ. Eternity awaits and it is not going to be good. There's a place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, Jesus spoke of a literal hell. And Jesus came to die for your sins that you do not have to go there. But see, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we know, man, I've honored the word of Jesus, of who is that prophet, right? That great prophet who has come. He's more than a prophet, but he's the prophet. And I honor his word. I hold up his word and I obey it. And I'm blessed as I do so. But look at the nation of Israel. Again, they rejected the word of Jesus. They did not accept him as the chief cornerstone, right? And they were, the builders rejected him, so to speak. And what happened? Their whole system, their whole culture was uprooted and destroyed because they rejected Jesus. 
And see, that's from a national standpoint. The same will be said for individuals who reject Jesus' words and testimony. But here's the good thing. As we accept his word and believe it, we do receive salvation. Jesus promised it in John 5, 24. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And see, in this section, Peter says, all the prophets wrote about Jesus, man. They wrote about the Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah who's bringing blessing from God. And see, he wants his audience to realize the time is upon you. You just need to believe in him. The prophet, the Messiah has shown up. Put your faith in him. He's not the political nationalistic deliverer to overthrow Rome that you wanted. That Just like the lame bag man wanted money. He wants silver and gold just to get by in his condition. God had something better. And in this case, they just wanted their political leader. God says, I'm saying you the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That's so much better. Now eternity is, is, is yours with the Lord and you're able to enter the kingdom of God. If God comes and establishes his kingdom through Jesus Christ before dying for sins, no one gets to enter it. <laughs> but see, Matthew 121 said that Jesus would save his people from their sins. That's the most important thing the Messiah had to do first. I believe, I know the restoration of things is coming, but without, without him dying for sins, none of us get to be part of it. Praise the Lord that he came and fulfilled all of those suffering mess, uh, messianic prophecies. <laughs> but don't be fooled. He will return again and he will establish as that prophet, as that Messiah, a rule and reign that if you reject it, you will be condemned. And see, redemption and restoration could be theirs because they were the sons of the covenant. As, as Peter said, you guys are sons of the prophets. This is yours for the taking if you just put your face in it. And see, in verse 25, Peter recalled God's covenant with Abraham when he said, look it, I'm going to, through your seed, through your lineage, I'm going to raise up a seed that through him, all the families of the earth, everyone's going to be blessed. And see, this is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is that Christ did come to the Jewish nation first. That, that was his desire, to, to gather Jerusalem as a hen would gather her chicks, Jesus said. But they rejected him. Some accepted him, and praise the Lord for that, because those that accepted him, they, they became like Peter and John. They became completed Jews. They were converted, and they believed in Jesus Christ, and they were the first missionaries. They were the ones that went out and began the great commission that Jesus told them to go out and do in 20, uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He said, go out to all the nations, of the world, all of the places. <laughs> he said, begin at Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the ends of the earth, and I am with you as you go and teach them the things I commanded you. But the reality is this was always God's plan. We look back to Isaiah 49, 6. It was written some seven or 800 years before Jesus came. And it said, I will also give you, speaking of the Messiah, as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And see, although he came first to the Jews, the reality is he also came for all the rest of the world. And as Peter says in verse 26, God raised his servant Jesus so that he could be sent here as a, and, and represent this blessing that is available to everyone. He will turn you away from your iniquities. Iniquities means, in the original language, it means evil motives and desires. You see, those things separate us from God's sin and trespasses. And that would be the blessed outcome if you surrender to Jesus Christ, believe upon him, 
Not only will you be a vessel filled with the Spirit of God, not only will your sins be blotted out, but not only will you be delivered from judgment, your iniquities. You'll be turned away from your, your evil ways. And you say, well, why don't people accept Jesus? I believe so often, and I can relate to this in my days before I truly accepted the Lord, we don't want to turn away from our iniquities. We like our sin nature and our patterns. We love our sin. We, we feed it. We chase it down and we live for it. Jesus says, I will deliver you from those things. So many people want to choose Barabbas. <laughs> they want to choose a murderer. They want to choose death. They want to choose a lie instead of Jesus and deny Jesus. Peter would say, don't do that. Peter, a man that denied Jesus three times says, I know. The better thing is to come and be converted. Repent of your denial. Turn to him. Trust in him. And you will know true restoration. And you will be delivered from your, your lame condition that you were once in. Spiritually, you will be healed. Galatians 3, 13 through 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that speaks of the cross that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And see, we too, we can receive this blessing of God and become grafted in heirs, inheritors of the kingdom of God, of these promises that were given to the Jews. <laughs> but it went out to us if we put our faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, amen? But you have to plead guilty. You have to say, yes, I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that I, it was my sin that put him on the cross. I killed Jesus. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans, spiritually speaking. It was my sin. When I acknowledge that, repent from them, he can deliver me from my iniquities. Amen? Well, that's the message for tonight, and I hope it's an encouraging one to you. The reality is we're going to see next week at the beginning of the chapter, people responded to it. You had two responses. One group fought the disciples on it, the apostles on it. The other group accepted it and they were blessed for it. Which group are you going to be in tonight? Are you going to reject it? Or are you going to accept it? I pray that you've accepted it and I pray that you'd walk in it and that you would be a living testimony of the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ through his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, heavenly father, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, your long suffering towards us, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord. The fact that we can open up your word and you work so mightily through it through the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters listening online live and during the week, Lord. I pray that you would just guide them, lead them, fill them with your spirit, and use them for your kingdom's sake. And right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your opportunity to confess that you're a sinner. This is your opportunity to say, I've sinned against you and I need to make that right. And the only way to make that right with God is by acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so if you want to be born again, you can say this prayer with me right now, right where you are. You would say this. You would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. I ask you to give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.